Thank you, worship team. That was awesome. I love that Ellie Holcomb song, and that's actually one of the songs I sort of sing loudly in the car when I'm by myself. I only mouthed it this time because one of my great fears in life is that you all will hear me singing with a mic on. I do not have the gift that you all have, but that was awesome. Okay, I see everybody is back in their scarves and their boots today. You've shed your flip-flops, um, and it is still February, and that's okay. And actually, I don't know about you, but I love being at Bible study when the weather's cold. It just seems like the right place to be. It's cold outside and warm-ish in here, and we have coffee and friends and our Bibles, and it's, it's sort of fun for me. And then we get to go outside and be in the sunshine, and it's cold but sunny, so that's a lot of fun. The... Um, Funny thing about how warm it's been lately is that I already have daffodils in full bloom in my yard. Does anybody else have daffodils that are totally in bloom? Just a few of you. Okay, I have some that aren't bloomed yet, but I was uh, in the backyard yesterday and just thinking how grateful I am for God's gift of perennials because I love something that pops right out of the ground without me having done a single thing to it. I forgot you were there, and then all of a sudden you pop out of the ground so beautifully, and I never have to do anything. I love a perennial, so praise God for that. Well, most of you know that... Oh, I forgot to tell you who I am. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women of the Lord teaching team and um, love getting to do that. And I spend most of my time now at the West Campus. And we do Women of the Word on Wednesdays instead of Thursdays, and we're six days behind you all. So just last night, we studied chapters 6 and 7, yesterday morning and then last night. And so it's very fresh on my mind still, the story of Stephen. I hope that you can recall it from last week because our... um, Story Today picks up exactly where chapter 7 left off, in fact, in the very next um, sentence. So let's just get started. We have lots to cover today. I love this chapter. It was incredibly encouraging to me. I hope it was to you as well. And let's start out just by reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'll read and you follow along. And Paul approved of his execution. That is the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So as we closed last week, you'll remember that we learned that the death of Stephen really marked the end of the gospel being taken directly to the Jews in Jerusalem. Many of God's chosen people, including many priests, had received the gospel on their own. They had trusted in the truth that Jesus was their promised Messiah, but the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, will no longer allow that message of Jesus to be shared in Jerusalem. From this point forward, the gospel is going to move beyond Jerusalem. What's happening in chapter se- as chapter 7 closes and chapter 8 begins is really haunting when you think about it. I wonder how terrifying those days were for our brothers and sisters, men and women who were really just like you and I, only removed by time and culture. And before we look more closely at what they were experiencing, think back to the chapters we've just been studying at what these new believers had just been able to experience. They had been devoting themselves to worship, to prayer, to um, taking their meals together, to experiencing this new life in Christ together. 
And all the while there was great love and unity among them, great sense of worship for the risen Savior. Those were good times. I think they were probably some of the best times of what life on this side of heaven has to offer. Peter and John had been arrested, but then they were let go. They were allowed to continue to um, preach their message. But then with the death of Stephen, it all suddenly changes. They, uh, this new church stands on the street and watches one of their friends, one of their beloved and respected leaders uh, be executed um, by incredibly angry uh, and raging men. And the Jewish authorities don't stop there. They begin to come after the rest of the church as well. When we think about what their experience was and how uh, much fear and how much of the unknown there really was, I think it makes what happens next and really what happens throughout the rest of the book of the Acts so remarkable. It is something that only could have been accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's growing body of believers who had just been experiencing this amazing unity, this amazing and deep knowledge of God together, watch one of their own die, and then it immediately becomes clear they're in danger themselves. And I just think of those young moms and dads who are standing on the street when they watch Stephen die, um, running home with their kids in tow, thinking, are we next? What's going to happen if my husband's dragged off to prison and killed? How am I going to feed my family? Was this worth it, what we're doing here? Why is this happening, Lord? The wisdom of the world would tell us that this new band of Christians would dissolve and would be no more. It was great while it lasted. It was a lot of fun. We um, learned some great things, but we're done. We did not sign up for prison, and we did not sign up for stoning. We didn't sign up for having to leave our homes, perhaps permanently. But let's continue to read in verses 4 through 8 because something far more powerful than the wisdom of the world is at play here. So follow along with me as I read in 4 down to 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Score one for God. Throughout this chapter, the gospel will face stiff opposition. I think never more stiff than in this scene here, where that opposition takes the form of severe persecution of the newborn church in Jerusalem. But the world's opposition is really no match for the power of the living God. Instead of defeat, there is victory. Jesus is proclaimed throughout Judea and then throughout Samaria. Those who Uh, the world tried to quiet, would not be quieted. In chapter 4, when Peter and John were brought before the Jewish ruling council and told to stop talking about Jesus, they refused because their allegiance was to the Lord and not to men. Stephen courageously spoke very pointed and hard truth before angry leadership. The persecution was meant to stop the spread of the gospel, but it was not stopped You know, the Greek word for scattered that we see in verse 4 is the same word that a farmer would use when he scattered or sowed his seeds to grow up a crop. The church was scattered by the plans of evil men, but because of that, the seeds of the gospel took root far and wide. 
I love that picture of the dandelion that we have on the cover of our notebooks in here. It's one of my very favorite covers that we've ever had um, as part of our Bible study. And I absolutely cannot think of a better symbol of the book of Acts than this dandelion. Dandelions are common around here in the spring. Some of us, in fact, my husband included, would even call them a nuisance. Um, They get in the way of his all-green yard. But I don't think I'll ever look at them the same again. Notice... At the, you see the stalk, and then I want you to look at the, at the top of the stalk where the yellow flower once was. There are where the seeds are, and you can see a few of them floating away. The seeds are connected by that really tiny, thin little stem. And then if you can sort of see the individual ends of each stem as they're floating away... They're topped by what almost looks like a helicopter blade. And all of that is designed so that when the wind blows or a kid comes and blows on it, those seeds are scattered. And wherever that seed lands, before long you get those bright yellow flowers popping up right out of the earth. And none of that would be true were that dandelion not designed just so by God. He designed those seeds to be attached very loosely to the base there at the top of the stalk. If those seeds were held very tightly there, the wind could blow or the kid could blow it and the seeds wouldn't go anywhere so you would only have a dandelion that sprung right back up where the old one was. The top of that little tuft um, looks almost like a helicopter blade. That allows the seed to be carried much further on the wind than it would otherwise be. Because of the great persecution they were facing, God's church was scattered like those dandelion seeds, but they were not silent. They took the gospel with them, and the church grew, and it multiplied just as Jesus said it would in in Acts 1.8. Acts 1 is on top of your outline. It is the key verse for all of the book of Acts, but it is particularly the backdrop for this chapter. So I want you to keep that in your mind as we um, talk about the rest of today. The fact that those dandelion seeds are loosely attached is vital to the propagation of those new dandelions. Otherwise, they just stay right where they were. I think the new believers that we're talking about here had been learning to hold loosely the way those seeds are held loosely to the things of this world. They had already learned to let go of their personal wealth in order to share it with those who were in need. They had already learned, up, learned to give up their own agendas and schedules to make time every day to meet and to fellowship and to pray and to worship together. I wonder if maybe it was that loosening hold on their own lives, on their own plans for their lives that made it easier for them to trust God and to continue to tell others the good news about Jesus as they had to leave their old life and start a new one somewhere else. They took the good news of Jesus with them where they went. They trusted God. They talked about God to everyone that was around them. Their new life in Christ was simply too powerful, too good to be contained. Even the threat of death would not squelch their love for Jesus and their devotion to his message. In Genesis 50:20, on your verse sheet, Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph here is speaking about physical life, 
Those who were scattered, though, could say the very same thing about those who had abused them and run them out of their homes. But in this case, they were able to share eternal life with those around them. These men and women were able to fix their eyes on Jesus. They were able to yield their will to God's. And they could say what Peter and Paul would later say in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. By faith, those who were persecuted chose to look at their situation from an eternal perspective and not from just the momentary suffering that they were enduring. In verse 5, our story narrows down a bit and focuses on one of those who were dispersed, and that's Philip. Those who left Jerusalem spread throughout Judea. I think they probably went to towns maybe where they had family, places where they could find some other way to make a living. Philip ends up in Samaria. You may remember from the Gospels how Israel and the Samaritans and how Samaria felt about each other. If you don't remember, I will tell you they did not like each other at all. The Samaritans had a muddled faith system. They um, certainly had Jewish ancestry, but long ago had begun to intermarry with the foreign countries around them. Because of that, they took on the practices and the customs and the cultures of these other countries. God had strictly forbidden this um, early in the law, but they had done it anyway, and so they had this muddled faith system, this muddled culture. As a result of that, um, they were despised by the Jews. Israel saw their um, departure from the Jewish faith as the corruption that it was, and because of that... um, A Jew and a Samaritan generally had nothing to do with each other. So Samaria would not be the obvious place for Philip to land after he left Jerusalem, but it was part of God's plan that was laid out in Acts 1-8, so there he is. Um, Can we look at the map that we had? This is the map, not the map you got today, but the map from the very first week that we studied Acts. You remember that up until now, in chapters 1 through 7, we have been centered right in Jerusalem. In these verses here, we see where the gospel was scattered throughout Judea, and now Philip is in Samaria. He is in one city in Samaria, but then the gospel begins to spread throughout Samaria as well. We are finally at that stage where the gospel is going um, beyond that one little center point. The scattered believers took the gospel with them uh, throughout. They were in Jerusalem, check, Judea, check, and now on to Samaria. Philip finds himself in a place, thank you, Philip finds himself in a place he would only be because God wanted him there. And the Samaritan's response, I think, to the gospel was just as surprising as Philip even being there. We are told that they all paid attention The Samaritans didn't like the Jews any more than the Jews liked the Samaritans, but they believed, they worshipped as Peter by the power of the Holy Spirit, healed their diseases, healed their disabilities, cast out evil spirits, and we're told that because of that, there was much joy. Finally, these despised people who had long ago veered off of God's track and his word had met their Savior. God's plan continues to move forward in the most remarkable ways. Now, the gospel spreading to Samaria marks that major milestone in our faith that we saw of it moving beyond Jerusalem. Uh, Salvation was first offered to Israel, but for the very first time ever, it's moving beyond Israel. 
Listen to what Jesus says after he has been resurrected. And he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Philip is the first to begin taking that task on of making disciples of all nations. Essentially, he's our first foreign missionary. And we are here today because Jesus gave that command to his disciples and then they gave it to their, um, the ones that were under them and then they gave it to the ones that were under them to take that message of salvation to the whole world. We are their spiritual legacy. This plan is still in action today and our Christian family is spread all over the globe, uh, spreading the gospel, serving those in need, translating the Bible into every language and dialect that there is. In fact, this weekend here at Christ Chapel, we get to celebrate some of that work of the gospel being taken over um, the whole earth with our missions emphasis, so, uh, week, whole weekend, really. Um, and Christ Chapel is heavily involved in that. What a, um, a great place to be a part of. Notice in verse 6 that the people paid attention both to what Philip said and to what he did. He was using words to explain the gospel message. And then he was also doing these miraculous signs to back up his message and to confirm it and to validate it. We communicate the gospel both by what we say and by what we do. There are times that we must be willing to just straight up articulate the gospel Using God's word, that's why we had that question in our homework this week, hopefully to give you a little practice on how to do that. We can use those words to explain the gospel. And the truth is we all have areas of gifting once we are believers um, to use for uh, the glory of God. I will tell you that evangelism is not one of my spiritual gifts. For some of you it is, for some of you it is not. I have experienced that discomfort and fear that comes with sharing the gospel, um, just using my words with an unbeliever. And sometimes those, just those feelings of discomfort creep in. My encouragement to you today and to me as well is to do it anyway, to be bold and to be brave and to trust God with the results of that. Giving someone the opportunity to meet their Savior is worth our momentary discomfort. The Samaritans paid attention both to what they heard and to what they saw. People around us are doing the exact same thing. So what does it look like to live the gospel in front of the unbelieving world? Look with me at Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This may be a familiar verse to you. It's called the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. As we live out these characteristics, and it's not easy to do that. We have to be yielded to the Holy Spirit in order to live out these characteristics. It doesn't come naturally to us. We are being watched. We're being watched by our friends. We're being watched by our neighbors. We're being watched by the woman who checks us out at the grocery store. We're being watched by our unbelieving family. It's how we're light in a dark world. 
we probably will not cross uh, the paths of many people who expect us to do what Philip did, to cast out demons and to um, heal our people's diseases. But we absolutely will cross paths every day with others who will take notice of women whose lives are defined by those fruits of the Spirit. And that speaks great truth about who God is and the power of his word and the power of the gospel. Just like the believers in the early church, we're to use our lives to take the gospel into the world and make disciples. That great commission in Matthew 28 is for us, just as much as it was for those original disciples. The gospel is communicated both in what we say and what we do. So let's be committed to be women who will share the gospel both with our words and with our actions. So let's continue now and read verses 9 through 25. It's a long passage, but it is good. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the words of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, May your silver silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, that is, Peter and John the apostles, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So we've got a new character on the scene here, that's Simon the magician. And in contrast to Peter, Simon tarnishes the name and reputation of God through his interpretation and response to the gospel. In the midst of all these amazing things happening in Samaria, this interesting situation bubbles up with Simon that could have proven to be a real distraction to the Samaritans as they were trying to cling to the gospel for the first time. It could have caused the people to misunderstand the purpose and the true power of the gospel. Previously, we saw opposition to the gospel through the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Now there is new opposition to the gospel as Simon attempts to use God's power for his own personal gain. Now, depending on your background, when you hear the word magic, you may have a very different response from someone else around you. For some of you, that may be a word that conjures up something evil. For some of you, you may just think of sort of the um, really innocent 
uh, magician with the top hat, pulling the rabbit out, sawing his pretty assistant in half, uh, something of an illusionist, maybe card tricks. There's no... Um, if you look in the, NI, uh, the NIV instead of the ESV, instead of magician, the word used to describe Simon is sorcerer. And I think that gives us a little clearer picture of what he was. There was real power behind what he was doing, and that power was not from God. The practice of sorcery involved attempting to heal diseases, invoking blessings and curses on people, It involved using the name of various idols and false gods and ascribing power to amulets and idols. All of this was done for profit by the sorcerer. People would come to him and pay him for his services. We read in in Deuteronomy this week that these practices are an abomination to God. An abomination is not a word we use very often. It means an extreme aversion. So when God calls these things an abomination, it's something we should take notice of. Look with me now at Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. The false teaching and philosophy that Paul is talking about here can be traced directly back to the kind of demonic activity that we're talking about here. And the same is true for what we read in that Deuteronomy verse. This all seems so sinister and scary. Why were the Samaritans so wowed by Simon? I think it's because he was doing what they could not I think he did have ability and power that they were attracted to. Many of them would have been in desperate situations, desperately in need of help. And I don't think what he did looked evil to them. I think it was evil uh, wrapped in something that looked good. It was, in fact, evil, but verse verse 10 tells us that the people thought his power came from God. So let's put Simon and Philip side by side for a minute because there is some um, debate about whether Simon was a true believer or not. I think his character becomes very clear if we can put these two men side by side. Both men had supernatural power. Philip came to Samaria healing, casting out demons and diseases in the name of Jesus, with the purpose of validating his gospel message to the people. Philip neither asked for or received any kind of personal gain from what he was doing for the people. Philip promoted the greatness of God. Simon promoted his own greatness and sought personal gain from everything that he did. Verse 13 tells us, though, that as Philip shared... Simon himself believed. You know, Simon's business was a supernatural. I don't have any doubt that he recognized real power when he saw it, and he was greatly interested and intrigued by what was going on. Simon professes faith. He's even baptized. He travels with Philip. So far, so good. But his true colors, I think, come out when Peter and John come to, um, and they arrive on the scene, They come to pray and lay hands on the new Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Simon likes what he sees there. There must have been some sort of um, something visible that happened when the hands were laid on them and the new believers received the Holy Spirit because Simon doesn't have any doubt that something has transpired here and that the Holy Spirit is in them now. By the way, we will come back to this scene about um, Philip and... uh, 
Peter and John laying hands and the new believers getting the Holy Spirit. So hold on to your thought about that there. We're going to come back to it. But let's finish up with Simon first. When Simon offers money to buy the Holy Spirit, Peter and his wrath are um, revealed. He immediately calls out Simon. I love Peter and how you never have any doubt about what he's thinking. He doesn't mince any words here. And he explains that our faith is not about personal power or gain. There is no room for profit from the gospel here. Salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's not something we can either buy or earn in any way. At this point, though, all is not lost for Simon. Peter offers him a chance to repent. He says, turn away from your sin. What happens next is very telling. Simon doesn't exactly repent in response to what Peter tells him. He doesn't exactly show remorse. He simply asks Peter to pray for him that he can escape the consequences of what he's done, of what his sin was. So was Simon a true believer uh, with, a, with a big sin issue he needed to be, deal with? Or did he, in fact, never come to a saving faith? The truth is we don't know because we cannot see into someone else's heart. Theologians even differ on whether or not Simon had come to a true saving faith. But most of those that I read come down on the side that he was not a true believer. But we don't know. There's an interesting historical side note here. There is a term that you can look up in the dictionary today called simony, S-I-M-O-N-Y. And it was used mostly in the Catholic tradition. You even find it in uh, Dante's Inferno, that book about, um, goodness gracious, about hell. Throughout 300 pages of it, I had to read it in high school. I hope I never have to read it again. It's one of the more depressing books I've ever read. But um, there is someone who practiced simony that Dante comes across in hell, and that is the morally reprehensible practice of using money to buy privilege, position, or pardon within the church. And when I looked it up in dictionary.com last night, it simply said using money to buy that which is sacred. Those two things don't go together. And I think bummer of a tradition that Simon left his family, that all these thousands of years later there's this word in the dictionary named after you about this horrible thing. And Anyway, bummer for his kids and grandkids. For believers today, there is a caution for us as well, and it is this. Do not dabble in the occult. There are lots and lots of books and movies out right now that make the occult and black magic and that sort of theme Thing seem very innocent and seem fun. I know when I was in middle school, we girls loved to have slumber parties and we got out Ouija boards and we'd have these fake seances. And at the time, it seemed like, did anybody else do that kind of thing? Yeah, okay, I see some heads raised or nodding. Some of you are about my age um, that did that. At the time, it seemed like fun. You got kind of scared and it seemed kind of spooky. And by God's grace, I don't think anything bad ever happened out of that. But now what I know for sure through the study of God's word is that all supernatural power is, is real. And it all either comes for God, from God or it comes from Satan. There's no in-between there. If it is never neutral and it is all from God or Satan, I think we should very carefully evaluate any supernatural things that we are a part of and only be a part of those that are clearly from the Spirit of God. 
Simon tried to hijack and twist the gospel for his personal gain, but his, no, his opposition is no match for the living God. Instead of defeat, there is victory. Simon is prevented from misrepresenting the gospel, and so that is score two for God. Now, back to this business about Peter and John and the Holy Spirit. Let's look back very briefly just at verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down to Samaria and prayed for them, the new believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not, he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So what is this about? Because we learned in Acts 2 that when a believer trusts Christ, it is at that moment that they receive the Holy Spirit and they're sealed with him forever. What is the deal with this? What happened in this scene in Samaria is a unique situation in which God sovereignly waited to give the gift of his Holy Spirit to the believers, to these, the new believers in Samaria. And here's why he did it. When Philip takes the gospel to Samaria, it's the first time in history that salvation is offered on a wide scale to those outside of the Jewish community. It's really a revolutionary. I think it's hard to grasp how revolutionary that idea would have been to the early church, who were all Jewish. When Peter and John, the top leadership apostles in the newborn church, go to Samaria personally and pray for these new believers and ask that the Holy Spirit be given to them, it communicates two vital truths. One is that the Samaritans, who now have the same Holy Spirit that the rest of the church had, the other new believers had, are essentially confirmed as full members of the new, this new church. Jewish believers cannot question whether the Samaritans really are a part of God's family now or not. Their leadership has confirmed that and has essentially validated their membership as part of this new body of believers in Christ. And to the Samaritans, it communicates something important too. Peter and John are telling them that you are one of us. There will not be a separate Jewish body of new believers Samaritan body of new believers, Gentile body of new believers. The apostles are bringing the Samaritans under one um, governing authority. They are becoming part of the same church as the Jewish believers had been. They will be united as one body of believers forever. Jesus prayed for this to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. I love this verse. Look with me at John 17. This is Jesus speaking. I do not ask for these only, that is for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus desired that there would be one unified body of believers under him, and by the um, approval of the apostles, that is what is happening to the new um, Samaritan believers. So what is happening here has a specific purpose because it's that first time that believers outside of the Jewish community um, 
are coming into the church. The normal course of events is for a new believer to receive the Holy Spirit at the time of his conversion and then to be sealed with the Holy Spirit forever. So let's finish up Acts chapter 8 with one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's the conversion of the Ethiopian unit. Let's begin in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asking, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, the eunuch said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. We're going to skip down to 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and, he, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Is that not a great story? I love it so much. So do you remember several years ago, I cannot remember, it was maybe five or six years ago, when this whole series of books came out called Chicken Soup for the Soul, and there'd be like chicken soup for the teacher's soul and chicken soup for the mother's soul and whatever. I never read any of them. I know they were full of... I think they were supposed to be like heartwarming and uplifting short stories. I can't imagine better chicken soup for the soul than this story. And ours is true. And so I love that. Here is a story of real chicken soup for the soul. But here, though, is another kind of opposition that we see to the gospel. It doesn't come from hard-hearted authorities who prevent the gospel from being spread in Jerusalem. It doesn't come from someone who is trying to steal the gospel for his own personal gain. It just comes instead from this really understandable lack of knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. The Ethiopian could not understand the scripture on his own. But never fear, the Holy Spirit is here. Philip is led by the prompting of first an angel and then the Holy Spirit so that he ends up in the direct path of this man who is traveling. I love where it says Philip runs to the chariot when he gets that prompting from the Holy Spirit. We can follow the beautiful example of Philip and be women who are quick to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as well in our lives. This Ethiopian was probably a Gentile who was known as a God-fearer. He was not a full Jewish convert, but clearly he worshipped the same living God as the Jews. It was no small feat on his task, or no small, um, no, it was a big deal for him to... um, to go from where he lived to Jerusalem to worship. It showed a lot of effort on his part. I also think it showed a lot of humility. As a eunuch, this man would have only been allowed to be in the outer courts of the 
temple in Jerusalem. Because of his mutilation, by law, he wouldn't have been allowed to worship in the inner courts. He would have stayed on the outside. So I think it shows great humility for him to go and worship there at the temple as well. But you know, in that chariot, he was reading Isaiah 53. That's where that prophecy comes from. I think he would have been familiar with Isaiah 56 as well. And in Isaiah 56, there is a beautiful passage where God promises the eunuch that although there are things he is denied here on earth, when he, if he believes, one day he will have an internal inheritance that is better than even sons and daughters. So the eunuch had that to look forward to because he was a true believer. When Philip miraculously arrives on the scene, that Ethiopian happens to be reading this passage. In Isaiah, that's a prophecy about Jesus. He happens to ask the exact right question that makes it ridiculously easy for Philip to pick up on from right there and share the gospel with him. And when the Ethiopian believes, they happen to pass a watering hole in the desert so that he could be baptized. In the last week of his life, Jesus had this to say to his disciples. Look at John 16. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What was the Lord's has been declared to the Ethiopian eunuch. He who had sought God found him. We serve a God who loves us so personally. I think that is one great thing to take away from this story is that this man, this foreigner, was loved so deeply and so personally by God that God orchestrated this set of events in such a way that when he was being sought, he was easily found. We know, he knew and he loved this one man intimately. He knows and he loves you just that intimately. He can meet each of our needs just as personally as well. Ask him. Ask him to do that for you. Philip's work is done, and so he's miraculously taken out of there. I think that it was his reward for uh, how obedient he was, how he ran through that desert to go find the um, Ethiopian, that when his work is done, God just takes him out of there. He did not have to trudge through the hot sand, however many miles it was to where he was going. I think that's kind of a fun part of the story. So Philip is off, and the Ethiopian gets to go home rejoicing. That's the second time we've seen new believers in this story rejoicing, finding joy in their salvation. The new believers in Samaria and now the Ethiopian know the truth of Psalm 68.3. But the righteous shall be glad and they shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Salvation is our greatest gift and our greatest joy in this life. We can't know for sure But I think that given all that happened in this story, everything that that Ethiopian sort of miraculously experienced, I mean, it had to get your attention. If all of the other things didn't get your attention, when Philip is just gone, all of a sudden that had to get your attention. I think it's very likely that he took the gospel back home with him into those royal courts. And if that's true, then this is the very first glimpse we get of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And I love that. That lack of understanding that hindered our Ethiopian friend from a saving faith was no match for God. 
Again, victory through Philip by the power of the Holy Spirit. He understands God's word and believes. And so that is score three for God. Zero for the enemy today. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. We live in a fallen world. There is constant pushback against the things of God. I think more and more we see stones being thrown at us. But Moses spoke truth when he said this in Exodus 15, 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Our God is all-powerful, and his plans will prevail. There's going to be setbacks. There are going to be times we will not always see victory this side of heaven, but he will prevail. I know that because his word tells us so. Three times today we encounter circumstances that could have haltered or stopped the growth of the new church. And three times today, we see that those difficult circumstances are no match for our living God. So I wonder if you're like me and you ever worry about our world that's under attack. I wonder if you're like me and you ever watch or read the news and just have to turn it off because it's Um, so discouraging. I think for me in the last few weeks between ISIS and Fifty Shades of Grey, I want to hide under a rock somewhere and not come out and the world seems sort of under control. Um, Or have you ever been discouraged when you walk away from a conversation with somebody who you know needs the Lord so badly who is just willfully choosing to not believe? Our God is mightier than our culture. He is mightier than the enemy. Look at Job's words in Job 42, 2. He says this. It's a great truth to cling to. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Sometimes it's hard to believe because what we see around us seems to be out of control. But everything we have in Jesus is ours forever. It cannot be taken from us. Take heart and be joyful in that truth. This is not all that there is. There is nothing else that's a guarantee in our life but our salvation. Jesus' death and resurrection, the means that we can experience life united with him, life abundantly with him from now and throughout eternity, That brought real joy to the believers in the early church. Let it bring us real joy today as well. Let us not forget that fact in our daily lives and let it not become old to us or old news of what we have in Jesus. God is good and God is powerful. He's powerful beyond our comprehension. Victory does belong to our God. So let's pray this morning. God, we praise you this morning. You are powerful. You are holy. You are good beyond our understanding. You have done things beyond our wildest imagination, and we trust that you will continue to do that, God. I ask that the truth of your word would just seep deeply into our hearts today. I, I ask that we would leave here encouraged, able to fix our eyes on you, and not on our circumstances, able to trust in you and not in ourselves and not in the world. Um, I pray that your word would change our hearts today, God. I thank you um, for the work that men and women have been doing since the time of the early church until now so that we can be in this room here today. Um, 
as part of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for that, and we love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.